so this will be week number seven which means this is broadcast number seven and this will be our number five and so far we've covered the first three chapters concerning the man Moses concerning the ministry that Moses would receive from the Lord and he pre his salvation was a colorful man he was short-tempered he would overreact and like I said over the last couple of Sundays spot an altercation intervene uh, kill a man put him in the sand and run for the hills and most people would say well that was surely the end of his relationship or potential uh, salvation or connection with the Lord but not really that was the beginning of the man Moses the making of Moses Exodus chapter 4 look at verse 1 please and Moses answered and said but behold they will not believe me nor hearken unto my voice for they will say the Lord hath not appeared unto thee so quite naturally Moses was number one suspicious as to how this would go number two he knew that the Jews wouldn't be falling over themselves lining up to shake his hand to receive what he was about to say to them and number three he knew his own limitations and once again Moses mirrors the man Christ Jesus on so many points but behold they will not believe me nor hearken unto my voice we shan't have this man to reign over us we have only one king that being Caesar the same would be true concerning the apostle Paul who does man think he is he's hanging around with Gentiles uh, over in the book of Acts it speaks about an occasion when Paul went uh, into Jerusalem and word went around uh, amongst the jealous Jews that Paul had been hanging around with Gentiles in the temple and as a result had desecrated the temple it was a lie of course and that caused quite a commotion and therefore Moses is trying to envisage how this will play out because he knows the Jews he knows what they are like for many years he sat back watching them work day and night and they watched him hanging around with Pharaoh's court and they thought to themselves this sure that man's one of us we know his parents he's not like the Egyptians he's one of us and yet he is an Egyptian a bit like the Lord Jesus Christ they knew that he was different to all of the others but they didn't really want to receive it and the uh, salacious statement was made concerning the saviour from the gospel of john how uh he was born in fornication quote-unquote a slur of course against the virgin birth and he would deal with that accordingly for they will say the lord jehovah hath not appeared unto thee and that's true they would have thought that if you watch television if you read the newspapers if you listen to radio uh, broadcasts on a regular basis you will hear a lot of religious people and every so often I ask myself this, how could it be possible that certain religions could get off the ground? I always think of the SDA uh, back in the mid-19th century. A guy called Miller arrived on the scene and he got quite a few people to follow his interpretation of the scripture. And he said this, he said, well, by my estimation, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return for the bride, the true church, on such and such a date, at such and such a time at such and such a location and maybe two or three dozen maybe a hundred people took him at his word they gave their homes away they abandoned their businesses walked maybe half a mile to a local hill and they waited and they waited 
and they waited and the Lord didn't come for them. And late afternoon, they had to go back into their communities, humiliated. Can I have my house back, please? Can I have my business back, please? Can I have my livestock back, please? Can you imagine it? The humiliation. And those poor old people were disillusioned, disgruntled, due to the man, William Miller, somebody who was self-appointed, took chances and backfired spectacularly. Look at verse 2, please. And the Lord said unto him, What is that in thine hand? And he said, A rod. So chapter 3 deals with Moses speaking to the Lord, receiving his commission, if you will. Chapter 4 is going to feed into signs and wonders. And I'll discuss that in a moment. Look at verse 3. And he said, Cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. So if you think of Mark chapter 4, second book in the New Testament, Jesus Christ arrives, and the signs and wonders, the miracles are on display to be seen. If you think of Exodus chapter 4, the second book in the Old Testament, the man Moses is about to do signs and wonders. The parallels are just too many to count. What is that in thine hand? And he said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground. And it became a serpent, devil. And Moses fled from before it. So Moses is now introduced indirectly to the serpent, the devil. Jesus Christ would be introduced to the devil, the serpent, directly. Matthew chapter 4. Look at verse 4. And the Lord said unto Moses, Put forth thine hand, and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand, and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. That they might believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, hath appeared unto thee. Take it by the tail. There's a picture of controlling it. There's a picture of dominating it. It says over in Romans 16 how Christ has crushed the head of the serpent, when Christ died on the cross, that was stage one concerning the elimination of the devil. Uh, stage two will be dealt with at the second advent of the Lord. Put forth thine hand and take it by the tail. You're going to have complete dominion over the serpent, over the uh, devil, unclean spirits, so on and so forth. And he put forth his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. That they might believe concerning the Jews that were suspicious, unsure of him, that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath appeared unto thee. Jesus Christ would say that if you didn't believe his words, I think it's John chapter 14, that you could believe his works, you could believe the miracles that he did. It was his good purpose to reach out to the Jews through signs and wonders but also through his words, through his ministry. And he too knew that the Jews would be suspicious of him, would question his credentials like they would do with Paul and Peter and others. And therefore, if his words weren't enough for you, uh, his works would have been more than enough. Look at verse 6. And the Lord said furthermore unto him, Put now thine hand into thy bosom. And he put his hand into his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous as snow. I think off the top of my head, you've got three accounts of leprosy in the Old Testament. You've got Miriam, 
who would question Moses over in the book of Numbers. You've got the uh, disciple of Elisha, who was somewhat greedy, unhappy with himself, and he too was going to get involved with trying to make money. And therefore, when you work through the word of God, you see that many of these signs and wonders are going to appear time after time. But leprosy is a pretty awful thing. And I was in Romania some years ago, and I was told by an American missionary couple, long dead, that there are still parts of Romania today where leprosy is still very much uh, in existence, nowhere near as bad as it once was. But the Lord knows that he has to equip Moses. The Lord knew that he would have to equip Jesus. The Lord knew that he would have to equip Paul. And one of the things that today's uh, so-called preachers don't have are the sign gifts. Miller didn't have the sign gifts. Smith didn't have the sign gifts. Uh, Russell didn't have the sign gifts. And yet, in spite of that, those religions still took off. Because people... Not all, of course, but a good number of people are hungry for something new, like an experience. But I look at the first six verses from Exodus chapter 4, and I see Moses, a man who has come of age, a man who knows how this is going to go, a man who's going to become Israel's first general. And allow me to correct myself, I received an email this week uh, concerning what I said two weeks ago concerning a certain American presidents and British prime ministers not seeing active service and I was corrected apparently and I did know this but I must have forgotten it how George Bush senior was in World War II he was a pilot and he was shot down so I stand corrected and George Bush junior was also a pilot in the National Guard so excluding those two uh, Clinton never saw any active service Obama never saw any active service Trump hasn't seen active service. And the same would be true concerning British Prime Ministers, excluding perhaps James Callaghan. But the point I was making uh, two weeks ago was that all of those men and women, Thatcher and May, have also uh, not experienced military service, uh, is a disadvantage for them, because they will send people out to fight and die, of course, where they have no experience, no first-hand experience, of what it's like to fight on the front line, Unlike Moses, unlike Cromwell, unlike King David and co. So you've got a picture here of Moses about to go back into Egypt. A very difficult thing to do. He has been raised in the best schools in Egypt. The Jews would have watched him like I say from a distance. They would have been very curious about what he was doing. They would have been somewhat envious as to how comfortable he was. He was torn. He was convicted. He's had his biological mother preaching to him. He's had his adopted mother preaching to him. He has his grandfather, quote-unquote, Pharaoh in the background, training him up to be the next Pharaoh. We don't know much about uh, Moses' father. Not much is said about him. We can read very clearly how Moses' mother was a very brave woman, and she put him into the Moses baskets. And, of course, he was later discovered by the daughter of Pharaoh, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, was a very brave woman. We read quite a bit about her. Matthew 1, Luke 1. We also read quite a bit about Joseph. But Exodus chapter 4 is about signs and wonders. Mark chapter 4 is about signs and wonders. Exodus chapter 4 is about Moses having the 
authenticity as a preacher, as a prophet, and the same too would be true of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. And he said, put thine hand into thy bosom again. And he put his hand into his bosom again and plucked it out of his bosom. And behold, it was turned again as his other flesh. It's clearly a miracle. In fact, like I say, leprosy, although it's not as bad as it used to be, there's no official uh, cure even for it today. If you find yourself with leprosy, not as severe as it was in uh, biblical times, but if you uh, contract leprosy, you can't be cured of that. Not really. And here the Lord gives Moses leprosy for a few seconds to maybe shake him up, also to show him just what was possible for the Lord. 8. And it shall come to pass, if they will not believe thee, neither hearken to the voice of the first sign, that they will believe the voice of the latter sign. Going back to, if you don't believe my words, believe my works. And also he would say that those that would come down the line would do greater works than what he would do, like in scope, like writing the New Testament, like preaching to Jews and Gentiles, like taking the gospel to the four ends of the earth. And charismatics come along and say, well, we can do the sign gifts like the Lord, like the apostles. But of course, they can't do the sign gifts. And I'll say it one more time. If you live in the UK, if you believe you can do the sign gifts, if you believe you are the real deal, drop me a line sometime. I would like to take you to my local hospital and introduce you to the doctors and the nurses and just work, just watch you work miracles. Start with the kids that have got cancer, leukemia, the sick kids, or deal with the uh, older people that have got Alzheimer's or people who have lost limbs or people who are blind or what have you, and just put those people back together again. It never happens, of course. But here, it's all about signs and wonders. And yet, in spite of the signs and wonders, the Jews, for the most part, would not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Contrast that to the Antichrist. When he arrives... Uh, over in the book of uh, Revelation, the whole world are going to fall over themselves to welcome him. But Moses knows his mission, his ministry is going to be somewhat of a challenge. He will go from being a shepherd, working around Mount Sinai, looking after his father-in-law's flock, to being the great shepherd. And he will lead over one million Jews out of Egypt. And for him to be able to do that, he will need the sign gifts. He will need to be commissioned. He will need everything that Almighty God can possibly give him. Look at verse 9, please. And it shall come to pass, if they will not believe also these two signs, neither hearken unto thy voice, that thou shalt take of the water of the river, and pour it upon the dry land. And the water which thou takest out of the river shall become blood upon the dry land. The first miracle that Jesus Christ would do is found over in John chapter 2 concerning the water being changed over into wine and that uh, also pictures salvation we are saved by the blood of christ you've also got moses about to deal with the river nile which around the time of pharaoh was a holy piece of water a holy part of egypt and it's ironic if you think of the last couple of verses from chapter one where moses and his Uh, fellow brothers are threatened with death by being drowned in the river Nile in the sea and if you take that and cross-reference that to chapter 15 when the Lord takes Pharaoh and drowns him 
in the sea. You see how ironic it is. If you think of water, like baptism, picturing the new birth, you see how something bad can become something good. But once again, the Lord wants to do something for Moses. He wants to commission him with signs and wonders like he would do with the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 4 is going to mirror Exodus chapter 4. Or the second book of the Old Testament, being Exodus chapter 4, is going to mirror the second book of the New Testament, Mark chapter 4. There's so much in this book that you couldn't miss it. Unless, of course, you didn't want to see it. But Moses is going to come up against the serpent. Jesus is going to come up against the serpent. That old devil, Satan, of course, referred to as Lucifer and... He's also referred to as a murderer, never far away. But this isn't just about the devil, it's about Moses. Because the Jews are entitled to a sign. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, I think it is. They are entitled to a sign. And here, this will be the beginning of signs and wonders. 10. And Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servants, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. This goes back to verse 1. Moses knew his limitations. Paul and Peter and James and John knew their limitations. I know my limitations. You know your limitations. And here Moses is somewhat anxious, which is very understandable. Like I say, he's gone from dealing with sheep and livestock over in Mount Sinai, modern-day Egypt or Saudi Arabia, take your pick to being the great shepherd, leading over a million people out of Egypt into the promised land, is a kind of daunting. So we can appreciate Moses being worried, and yet at the same time, he's lacking faith. Three times, Peter would say to Jesus that he wouldn't deny him. How, if all of the others forsook him, Peter would stay firm. And when uh, that was put to the test, Peter failed miserably. And here Moses is doubtful. He's apprehensive, he's lacking faith. And it says, or he says, I am not eloquent. And of course he was. He'd been to the best schools in Egypt. Neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servants. But I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. Very modest as well. Later on, you read about Moses being very meek. Jesus Christ was also very meek. So we don't want to be too hard on Moses. We don't want to be too hard on him. We don't want to accuse him of being a coward because he wasn't. We don't want to accuse him of being uh, unsure of what the Lord could do. The Lord has just shown him what he can do, uh, verses 6 and 7. So we want to appreciate the fact that Moses is up in years now, around 80. He's got a huge task ahead of him, and he will go forth. He will go forth. It speaks about kings going forth. He will go forth. Jesus Christ would go forth. Paul, Peter, James and John would go forth. You were told to go forth. You were told to uh, finish a race which the Lord has set you. You were told to uh, endure until the end, Matthew 24, uh, because you are saved, not in order to prove you are saved, or not in order to stay saved. Look at verse 11, please. And the Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth, or who maketh the dumb, or deaf, or the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? What a statement. So indirectly, Almighty God is saying that he has made disabled people. He has made mentally ill people. He has made people with learning disabilities. 
And he says, look, if I made all of those people, and here he's saying that he did, evolution doesn't get a looking, uh, why are you so doubtful? Why are you questioning what I am saying to you? Who hath made man's mouth? Who maketh the dumb, deaf, seeing, or blind, have not I, the Lord? So indirectly, the Lord creates everything. I mean, physically, biologically, your parents created you. But indirectly, the Lord allowed the birth to take place. He allowed conception to take place. So he has taken credit, quite uh, rightly so. He has taken uh, the credit for your existence and also for those kids that are born with defects. Kids that are born with uh, short legs or bad backs, real uh, disabilities which you see all around you people that are born uh, with an ear missing or are partially blind or what have you and he's saying look I've made those people I know what I'm doing I'm going to choose you Moses don't question me don't second guess me I know you've been in Egypt for 80 years or say 40 years and several years with his father-in-law I know the children of Israel have been in bondage for over 400 years but you shouldn't be doubting what I am saying to you. But this is the problem when it comes to the church and Israel. This is the problem when it comes to those of us which are born again, trying to understand Israel, trying to appreciate Jewry. And I think of some of the uh, conservative Christians that have radio shows and television shows in America and I've watched some of these uh, characters over the years. And I've noticed one thing that they all have in common uh, with each other and their guests. And number one, they are all post-millennial. And number two, because they are all post-millennial, they are quite happy to work with unsaved Jews. And I've watched some of these Christians interviewing people like Milo, people like Ben Shapiro, people like uh, Anne Coulter, and other uh, conservative uh, commentators, socially conservative, not always morally conservative. And I watched some of these people interviewing, or some of these Christian people interviewing people like uh, Pam Geller, people like uh, Glenn Beck, very conservative when it comes to social affairs. And it dawned on me a few nights ago as to why these conservative Christians are working and endorsing people like Shapiro, Geller, and Coulter is because they are post-millennial. And if you are post-millennial, you want to make this a better world, don't you? If you are post-millennial, you want to improve the world so the Messiah can return. And if you are an unsaved Jew, that's what you want as well. You want to make things better. So when the Messiah returns, the world is ready for him. And that's where the left and the right have got a lot in common. If you look at the hard left, the far left, they want to make this a better world, but with no king on the throne. If you look at the far right, they want to make this a better world, but with no king on the throne. And if you are premillennial, like I am, you have nothing in common with either group. And this is why I think we have to be so careful when it comes to who we endorse and who we associate with. Also, a good number of these people, which I've just mentioned to you, are resurrection deniers. They have nothing in common with us when it comes to being Bible believers, so why are we endorsing them? And I've watched some of these Christians online almost falling over themselves to applaud someone like uh, Shapiro, who, yes, is anti-abortion, and praise the Lord for that, is pro the family, and yes, praise the Lord for that, but he is a resurrection denier. 
He doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's made statements over the years which are very uh, anti-Christian and are offensive to Christians like myself. And yet, I've yet to hear any Christian, I mean conservative Christian commentator, challenge him and rebuke him. This is where Christians, especially American Christians, get sometimes too close to unsaved Jews or people who are a part of a political group. It's all very well standing outside abortion clinics, but the chances are, if you do that, the Catholics are also going to be there with their placards pushing Mary, pushing the Mass. You're going to stand against them? You're going to challenge them? They blaspheme the Lord Jesus Christ. They have to crucify him again and again and again. You're going to work with those people? You're going to stand with people like uh, Geller and Shapiro and other unsaved conservative Jews who are, once again, resurrection deniers? You can't stand with these people. And this is why it's a lonely existence. There's a line in the 1960 movie called The Exodus, a very good movie, a very true story, when the Jews went back into Israel, and Paul Newman is playing one of the Jewish leaders who would be parts of the early Jewish government, 1948-1949, and he's speaking to his colleagues, and to cut a long story short, he makes that very well-known statement, how the Jews have no friends. We are all alone, we have no friends. And I thought that's very true for the Jews, 1948, but it's very true for the Christians today. Those of us which are born again, those of us which are in the UK, we are a minority of minority, and therefore we have no friends, we have no pressure groups. So I just want to make that case, that point, because I think sometimes we, those of us which are saved and are naturally pro-Israel, and we make no defence for that, don't want to get too close to unsaved Jewish people who have another agenda, who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, have no interest in the Lord Jesus Christ, and again, are resurrection deniers. We can spot the Muslims. We know what they think about our Saviour. We can spot the Catholics. We know what they think about the finished work of our Saviour. We can spot the Calvinists. We know what they believe about limited atonement. But sometimes we get a little uh, lightheaded when it comes to the Jews. And we fall over ourselves. We mustn't do that. Because of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, they are beloved. Never forget that. Never be anti-Semitic. But at the same time, you can't endorse these people. You can't share platforms with these people. You can't link arms with these people. They are not saved. And Paul had this problem time after time after time after time. And if anybody had uh, the knowledge of what it was like uh, to come up against not just unbelieving Jews, but hostile Jews, Jesus would, and so too would Paul. But here you're looking at Moses about to go back into Egypt. You're reading about Moses about to deal with the most powerful man in the world. And quite naturally, he is fearful unsure of himself look at verse 12 now therefore go and i will be with thy mouth and teach you what thou shalt say progressive revelation you won't find anyone in the old testament who was given everything by the lord all at once if such a thing took place such a person would overload just overload they couldn't handle it so bit by bit the lord would speak to abraham He would speak to Isaac, he would speak to Jacob, he would speak to Joseph, and now he is speaking to Moses. Also, that stops any one man receiving all of the glory. Jesus Christ spent three and a half years on the earth, not three and a half months. And over three and a half years, he would preach and teach and work alongside his Jewish 
apostles because it would take three and a half years to mold those men into real men. And yet when he went to the cross, they all scarpered like cowards. Just one man. John stood firm, didn't run for the hills like Moses would do after murdering the Egyptian. Now, therefore, go, go, gospel, good news, get busy, get going, and I will be with thy mouth, inspiration, of course, and teach thee what thou shalt say. So Moses isn't just, isn't just going to go around having his own uh, say about this or that. He will preach what the Lord wants him to preach. He will do what the Lord wants him to do. And some of the Jews are going to receive it. Others will not. By the time uh, that the children of Israel arrive in the promised land, back end of Deuteronomy, it says most of that generation had died off, had died off in the wilderness. And a good number of those people had been killed by the Lord. 13. And he said, O my Lord, send, I pray thee, by the hand of whom thou wilt send. Please, Lord, send somebody else. I don't feel equipped to do this. I don't feel very comfortable being sent uh, to do what you want me to do. Yes, I want to do it. And yes, he will do it. As the Father sent me, even so send I you, uh, John 20, 21, I think it is. But here Moses is apprehensive. He realizes how daunting such a task is. And he wants to not just back out, but he wants somebody else to come alongside him. And that someone else will be Aaron, of course. Look at verse 14. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite thy brother? I know that he can speak well. And also, behold, he cometh forth to meet thee. And when he seeth thee, he will be glad in his heart. So you've got Moses, you've got Aaron, you've got Miriam. Two boys and a girl, born to their parents. The Lord Jesus Christ had brothers and sisters. And here, the Lord realizes that Moses is struggling. And he wants to help him out. And he would do so via Aaron. If you think of Moses working very closely with Aaron... If you think of Jesus working very closely with John the Baptist, if you think of Paul working very closely with Dr. Luke, if you think of the Antichrist working very closely with the false prophets, you see people working in twos. If you go onto the streets on a regular basis, you see the Jehovah's Witnesses going out in twos. You see the Mormons going out in twos. The apostles were sent out in twos. It's always preferable to go out in twos. And yet saying that, I have gone out onto the streets on my own, as has Patrick. Sometimes you have to do that. Sometimes you haven't got the uh, opportunity or the privilege to have someone to fall back on. Christ would say how the harvest is uh, great, but the laborers are few. Nothing much has changed. It's always the minority that do the most. But here, uh, Aaron has been mentioned, a Levite. And of course, Aaron was a Levite, Moses was a Levite, John the Baptist, uh, his father is or was a Levite. Jesus Christ wasn't a Levite, he was from the tribe of Judah. And here the Lord is going to help the man, Moses out, by using Aaron to work alongside him, which in some ways was somewhat uh, of, not a put down for Moses, but in some ways it's somewhat embarrassing if you think of the apostles, once the Lord chose them, once he commissioned them, once he sent them out, for the most part, they worked on their own. I know uh, Peter and John worked quite closely together 
during the early chapters of the book of Acts. But later on, Peter seems to be going off on his own. John, we don't read much about him until he writes his gospel, the three eyes and revelation. Paul, as I say, would work very closely with Luke, Timothy and others. But at the same time, he too would go out on his own. But it's worth reminding ourselves that such men were apostles, not just evangelists. They were unique men, and those men would write the New Testament. So for the Lord to appreciate and sympathize with Moses is uh, obviously very welcoming. And yet at the same time, it is a slight rebuke to Moses. He's going to take Aaron, three years older, and he will be the prophets to Moses. Which, if you want, is a picture indirectly, or it's a picture in reverse of the Antichrist and the false prophets, or Jesus Christ and John the Baptist, but not quite. I don't want to stretch it too much. There are similarities in the scriptures uh, concerning the Old Testament and the New Testament, but the point you are to hopefully get from these verses is how Moses, a bit like Abraham, is bartering with the Lord doesn't quite know how this is going to go, is naturally fearful, wants reassurance. And the Lord, ever compassionate, ever merciful, doesn't just say, be gone with you, or click his fingers and burn him up. He's actually going to work with Moses, which is remarkable. 15. And thou shalt speak unto him, and put words in his mouth, and I'll be with thy mouth, and with his mouth, and will teach you what ye shall do. So inspiration, Moses is going to write the first five books of the Old Testament. He will probably write Job and some of the Psalms. He will teach Aaron uh, what to do, how to dress, and how to operate in the tabernacle. But again, this also goes back to the reality that the Lord doesn't choose him one man. No one man in other Testaments, excluding Jesus Christ, of course, ever gets all of the glory. If you look at the Apostle Paul or Peter, many times they're working with other men. And when Paul uh, writes his epistles, he writes them to the church, like the elders, like the men that were running such churches. There's no one man receiving all of the glory. I know you get Timothy 1 and 2, and you get Titus, um, and also Philemon. But apart from those particular books, most of the epistles in the New Testaments, are written to the church via the elders. 16, and I'll close. And he shall be thy spokesman unto the people. And he shall be, even he shall be to thee, instead of a mouth, and thou shalt be to him instead of God. I got an email from a man in the Christadelphians some years ago, and the Christadelphians are a Christian cult in Britain and North America, And this guy had watched one of my videos against the Christadelphians. And he wrote to me trying to argue that Moses was deity based on uh, this verse from 16 concerning, and thou shalt be to him instead of God. And I said, no, what this is meaning is that Moses is a mediator, a savior, a deliverer. All of the Old Testament greats are saviors, mediators, deliverers. But Christ Jesus is the ultimate mediator between man and God. And this guy got back to me, not particularly happy with my reply. And about two years ago, I got an email from this guy. And he said to me, uh, 
just want to let you know that I'm no longer a Christadelphian. I appreciate what you are doing. Please continue to speak out against false religions or the ecumenical movement, going back to people like Coulter, Geller, Shapiro, Beck, and other unsaved people, Milo too. Yes, they are all very entertaining. Yes, they make a lot of interesting points. They are, as I say, conservative when it comes to social affairs, but not always conservative when it comes to moral affairs. And most of those people, excluding perhaps Coulter, who professes to be a Christian, are even saved. They're unsaved people. So why are we, those of us which are born again, number one, endorsing such people, number two, working with such people when they are of another spirit? And this guy in the Christadelphian movement was over the moon that he'd come out of such a false religion, was uh, appreciative as to what I had said over in some of my videos against his false uh, movement, but unfortunately he had been led to believe that Jesus Christ wasn't almighty God. They don't believe that, the Christadelphians, like the JWs, don't believe it, and other false religions, and therefore he, as far as I know, was struggling to know what to do concerning the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like this, if you get the nature of God wrong, if you get the salvation of the Lord wrong, if you get the Bible issue wrong, you're out. Three strikes and you're out. I caught a clip last night uh, concerning uh, Jesse Lee Peterson, a very interesting black conservative American, makes a lot of good points. And I appreciate a lot of what he says, like Coulter, like Shapiro, and Geller, and other conservatives, which I've already mentioned over the last 40 minutes. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, Peterson has a very low view of the scripture. A very low view of the scripture. And without going into a full explanation as to what he believes, it's my belief that he could perhaps be a Gnostic. And therefore, if he is wrong on the scripture, and I believe that he is, if he's wrong on salvation, and I believe that he is, he could quite possibly be wrong on the nature of God as well. I don't know what he believes about the deity of the Lord or the triunity of the Lord, but if he gets that wrong as well, he's out. Three strikes and you're out. These guys are all very interesting to watch. They make a lot of good points and much of what they say doesn't get reported in the media. But the moment you get salvation wrong, the moment you get the scripture wrong, the moment you get the nature of God wrong, you're out. I don't care who you are or where you are. If you end up getting all that back to France and becoming uh, guilty of heresy, then you are a heretic and you are out. So you've got 16 verses from the fourth chapter of the second book of the Old Testament, very much mirroring the second book of the New Testament concerning the fourth chapter and Jesus Christ would preach directly and indirectly against and to Herod and Pilate and here Moses is going to preach directly to Pharaoh but he'll also have to win over the hearts of the children of Israel it does say several times in the four gospels how the people the common people heard the Lord Jesus Christ gladly if you think of the book of Acts I think it's around 10, 11 or 12, certainly before the 15th chapter. You've got around 20,000 Jews that are saved. 20,000. Most churches in the UK don't even have a fifth of that. And by the 15th chapter in the book of 
Acts, the unofficial fifth gospel, you've got 20,000 saved Jews. So don't be overly critical of Israel or the Jews or people that are religious. I'm sure for the most part they are well-intended. But if they're unsaved, they are just as lost as you were before you got saved. And if they are uh, lost and unsaved, they are just like I was before I got saved. Conservative concerning social affairs. But even if they were conservative concerning moral affairs and social affairs, so what? If you're not born again, you're lost. And that's why I think a good number of people that are going to be in hell are not just going to be from the liberal aspect of our society, but from the conservative aspect of our society Conservative and liberal people are going to be in hell. Upright, very religious, dogmatic, but not born again. Never received Christ as their saviour. Never believed on him. Never believed in him, trusted on him. And as a result, the tragedy is you're going to have hell full of religious people on the conservative wing of society and on the liberal wing of society. And that's why the Lord would say to be like a child to inherit the kingdom of God. So we are working our way through Exodus chapter 4, and last week we looked at the Lord speaking to Moses, giving him a commission, and the first thing that the Lord wanted to make clear to Moses would be, number one, that all things are possible to those that believe. On top of that, you saw Moses being introduced to a rod, being referred to as a serpent, and James 4, 7 speaks about submitting yourselves Therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So Exodus chapter 4 starts off with the Lord briefing Moses one-on-one, and Moses wants Aaron to help him out. If the truth be known, uh, Moses didn't really need anyone to go out with him to be his spokesman. And that term spokesman is still used today, like the president's spokesman or the prime minister's spokesman. And of course, Aaron would make many mistakes along the way, would cause a lot of embarrassment and shame to Moses. But the Jews are entitled to a sign, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and Exodus chapter 4 starts with signs. But first and foremost, in the presence of the Lord, and then in the presence of the children of Israel, which if you think about salvation, Romans chapter 4 speaks about believing on the Lord, which the Lord sees, justification in the sight of God. And then once a person gets saved, it's justification in the sight of man. James chapter 2, 4.17. And thou shalt take this rod in thine hand, wherewith thou shalt do signs. Signs and wonders. And here Moses is the miracle man. He will do miracles. And he will speak about somebody coming down the line. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Who will do signs and wonders. And no, that's not Muhammad. That is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. 18. And Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said unto him, Let me go, I pray thee, and return unto my brethren which shall in Egypt, and see whether they be yet alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. As the Father hath sent me, John 20, 21, even so send I you. So here Jethro resumes the type, or is offered as a picture of God the Father, commissioning God the Son, being Moses, to go back to the children of Israel, which for Jesus Christ would be the first advent and also the second advent. And here, Moses is very deferential. He had a great love for his father-in-law. In fact, this past week, Billy Graham died, and I read his autobiography some years ago, and I wrote about Billy Graham. And 
If there's one thing I thought was somewhat respectful concerning Graham was his love for his father-in-law. He would refer to him as Dr. Bell. And just very quickly, uh, during World War II, uh, Graham's father-in-law and his wife went to China, were missionaries, and then the Japanese invaded, and they got out. But other missionaries stayed put, like uh, the runner, Eric Liddell, and of course he died at the end of World War II. But Graham was very respectful uh, to his in-laws, Dr. Bell this, Dr. Bell that. A lot of respect, and you can't help but appreciate that type of a thing. Unfortunately, down the line, Graham would apostatize. He would get too close to unsaved people. He would be referred to as America's pastor. He would enjoy the good life. And over the last five or six days, the outpouring of grief and people applauding him is somewhat sickening, somewhat surprising, somewhat alarming. And I saw the news this morning that his body is going to be laid in state in Washington, D.C., and he will probably get a full state funeral. You can imagine that every uh, living president will be at the funeral. Many VIPs from around the world will probably fly in to pay homage to Graham. And according to one news report that Patrick caught this week, there were pictures all around his mansion of photographs of Graham with Khrushchev, the Popes, Kennedy, Nixon, the Queen of England, Thatcher. I mean, anybody you can think about over the last 50, 60 years, maybe over 100 photographs on the walls all over his mansion. What's going on here? Talk about self-worship. If you think about when Jesus Christ died or when the Apostle Paul died, two, three, four people present. You didn't find Pilate or Herod present. And that's a great lesson which we all need to be careful of, that we don't get too close to the world. But verse 18, Moses wants Jethro to give him permission to go back into Egypt to inquire concerning his people. He won't just walk out on his father-in-law because he was working for his father-in-law. His father-in-law was a shepherd, and like I said, over the last couple of Sundays, Moses was a shepherd too, and therefore to abandon his father-in-law would have been reckless without permission. Look at verse 19. And the Lord said unto Moses in Midian, Go, return into Egypt, for all the men are dead which sought thy life. Very reminiscent to Matthew chapter 2. Go back into the promised land. Go back into Israel. All those men which sought the death of the Lord Jesus Christ are dead. And again, you've got three pharaohs in the book of Exodus. You've got three Herods in the New Testament. And I'll discuss that more in a few moments. Look at verse 20 from Exodus chapter 4. And Moses took his wife and his sons and set them upon an ass. And he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. First John 3.1 says we are the sons of God. And here you've got Moses pictured with his family like his wife and two sons on an ass and therefore his sons must have been young must have been little to sit on an ass with their mother being Moses's wife and off they go into the land of Egypt now, now like I said over the last couple of weeks this could have been a very dangerous thing for Moses to do he could have been detained he could have been uh, tortured and put to death if you cross the mafia what they will do is they will track you down and they will get your wife. They will get your uh, children. They will torture your wife. They will torture your children. And they will say, do you still want to go after us? Are you still keen to arrest us, detain us? In reference to law enforcement, of course. And many judges have been assassinated in, in uh, Italy 
over recent years by the mafia and yes they are still very powerful and many law enforcement people in America and also in Italy have had to tread very carefully because they may be prepared to lay their own lives down for their country for the good of their community but are they prepared to sacrifice their wives and their children and many times the answer of course is no so here Moses knows this could be a very dangerous trip for him he goes out by faith and like I've been saying over the last few Sundays sometimes we can overanalyze we can overprofile people such as Moses and we can uh, highlight his flaws and his weaknesses and of course that is why such accounts have been preserved in scripture for our admonition and that's why if you are a man you should be able to relate to one two perhaps three old testament greats or if you are a woman you should be able to relate to one two or three greats in the old testament and say that sounds like me but here You've got a picture of the Holy Family, if you will, like Joseph, Mary and Jesus traveling. And Joseph, Jesus and Mary would have traveled on a horse or a donkey of some kind from A to B. And here it's the same kind of thing. And off they go back into Egypt along with his wife and his two sons. So once again, the types and shadows are numerous. Look at verse uh, 21, please. And the Lord said unto Moses, when thou goest to return into Egypt... See that thou do all these, all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I put in thine hand. But I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. That's the first reference to the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart. And the Calvinists love to quote this. And they say, number one, that you don't have free will, which of course is a lie. Number two, he will harden your hearts, which, yes, is true, even not one of his children. And here Pharaoh was never one of the Lord's children. Can he harden the hearts of his children which go astray? Yes, quite possibly. Paul speaks about people over in Second Corinthians that were up, were up to all sorts of uh, mischievous, mischievous uh, things. And the Lord dealt with such people. But here the Lord is very much in the driving seat. And he wants Moses to do these wonders before Pharaoh. Now like I said a few moments ago, this chapter starts off with the Lord speaking to Moses. And Moses has the rod, which is a type of the devil, and that's a picture of Christ getting victory over the devil. Such an incident is only witnessed by Jehovah and Moses. But now he wants to tell Moses to do these signs and wonders in the presence of all. Going back to Mark chapter 4, Jesus Christ starts to do miracles in the presence of his people. In fact, I think from memory, Mark chapter 4 speaks about the Lord on a boat in Galilee, and a, a, uh, some incident starts to take place, strong winds, and the devil, of course, is wanting to sink the boat, and the Lord rebukes the sea, because the sea, of course, is controlled by the serpent. I will harden his heart. From memory, this term is found eight times in the book of Exodus. At the same time, the term Pharaoh hardening his heart is found six times. Or maybe seven times. So what you've got is the Lord. Number one hardening Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh also hardening his heart. And like somebody once said. When the Lord turns against you. Or turns his back on you. Or just lets you do your own thing. You are completely through. Harden his heart that he shall not let my people go. He wants to destroy Pharaoh. This will be the third and final Pharaoh. And like I said, over the last couple of Sundays, you've got three pharaohs. The second pharaoh found or cited from Exodus would be Moses' grandfather, if you will. 
that pharaoh dies out. That pharaoh had no sons, but this pharaoh does have a son. Look at 22. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. Go to Colossians chapter 1. If you speak to Jehovah's Witnesses about the term firstborn, they think it is in reference to Jesus Christ being born in a sense of the firstborn, like time-wise, in a, uh, in a time setting. But the correct uh, definition of firstborn is laid out very clearly from Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 14, please. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. That's the definition, preeminence. He's the most important person that ever lived and will ever live. Go back to Exodus chapter 4. So here the Lord wants Pharaoh to know that Israel, as a people, not as a person, is the Lord's firstborn. David, from the Psalms, I think it's Psalm 89 for memory, is referred to as God's firstborn. Ephraim is also referred to as God's firstborn. It has nothing to do with when a person was born, what birth date they would enjoy it's to do with preeminence it's to do with importance unlike billy graham who was very much applauded by the elites in america the news networks falling over themselves to applaud him and you ask yourself this what would a man such as graham have in common with the world well quite a lot one of his first jobs as a pastor back in 47 48 was to pastor in a masonic hall and then a guy called hurst came along decided to give Billy a break, and overnight, he became the most famous evangelist the world has ever seen. He went to Rome five times, and one of his last trips to Rome to visit uh, Pope John Paul II, he spent a week in Vatican, Vatican City, one week. And that reminds me of when uh, John Paul II died. You had three American presidents going to Rome, one current, two former presidents, and they spent three days in Rome. Ask yourself this, who really runs the world? I think you know, don't you? But here, Exodus chapter 4, the term firstborn means Israel. Israel is the beloved of the Lord. And Pharaoh is told that Israel is God's son in a spiritual sense, not a literal sense. Jesus Christ is the only begotten of God, even my firstborn. Going back to concerning preeminence, not one's birth date. And I say unto thee, verse 23, let my son go, that he may serve me concerning Israel. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. So in the ancient world, the firstborn was always a very important member of the family. The firstborn would replace uh, the death of the father 
I remember watching some old black and white footage when I think it was George V died. And the wife of George V uh, came into the palace and said, uh, your father has just died. And she was speaking to her son. And she got down on her knees. And she said, now you are the king. And everybody stopped what they were doing and saw their mother, the Queen of England, on her knees because George V had just died. And in that moment, a transfer of power had taken place and all of the princes and princesses and the royal family in the UK got down on their knees because the father had died and George VI, I think it was, was going to replace his late father. And here he wants us to be very clear that what is going to take place is going to change the world forever. This is a commandment, and you can't reverse a commandment. Look at verse 24, please. And it came to pass, by the way in the inn, that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Now, this is in reference to circumcision. Last time, if you think about when Moses dealt with the Egyptian, he weighed up the pros and cons, and when the coast was clear, he moved in, and he killed a man. He murdered a man, like Cain would kill a man. And Cain wasn't killed. Cain was spared, picturing grace. And Moses too wasn't killed, picturing grace. But here, the Lord has gone to meet Moses to kill him. This will be in reference to circumcision. Now for the Old Testament, if you were a Hebrew and you weren't circumcised, this is what would await you, physical death. For today, if you are not circumcised in a spiritual sense, the Lord will kill you. In fact, go to uh, Colossians chapter 2, go back to Colossians. Colossians chapter 2 speaks about spiritual circumcision. Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, look at verse 10 please. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. Who hath raised him from the dead? Go back to Exodus. So you've got a physical circumcision, which puts uh, puts you into the Abrahamic line. And again, if you didn't circumcise your sons, death would await you. And for now, if you're not circumcised in a spiritual sense, eternal death awaits you. Picturing salvation, picturing salvation being a supernatural act. You can't save yourself. Came to pass by the way in the inn, verse 24, that the Lord, triune God, met him, Moses, and sought to kill him. Then Sapor took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of a son and cast it at his feet and said, Surely a bloody husband art thou to me. Moses, this is your fault. You knew the rules. You were raised a Hebrew. You always knew that you were a Hebrew. And one of his two sons, mentioned from verse 20, hasn't been circumcised, picturing contempt. If you think about that account from the book of Numbers, when a man is found gathering sticks, And word gets back to Moses and co. that such a person has been gathering sticks. And they inquire of the Lord what to do. And the Lord says, kill him. It's contempt, you see. That man with the sticks had all week to get his shopping in, if you will. And he was told to rest during the Sabbath. And during the Sabbath, that's just what it meant. A complete period of rest. I caught an interview last week from uh, uh, one of the US channels in America interviewing uh, Ivanka Trump, uh, the president's daughter. A very interesting interview. And she was speaking about how one day every week her and her husband shut down. They switched their phones off. They switched their iPads off. 
they go for long walks in the park, they have nice meals, and you think, what a wonderful time, a time of friendship, a fellowship, time for the family to get together, praise the Lord. I have no problem with that. But what she didn't tell the audience was that she does so because she's a Jew. It's to do with the Sabbath, you see. From Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, Orthodox Jews shut down and they aren't supposed to make any money. Now, I've mentioned this over the years and I've always been curious as to just how strict uh, such Jews are. And I don't doubt what she says. I'm sure Ivanka and Jared switch their mobile phones off. I'm sure they switch their tablets off. I'm sure they don't watch television uh, during the uh, 24-hour Sabbath cycle. I don't doubt that at all. And I'm sure they go for nice long walks outside of Washington, D.C. But I'll tell you something. It wouldn't surprise me if their minions, non-Jews, are still working behind the scenes. It wouldn't surprise me if they are running uh, businesses on behalf of Ivanka and her husband. And it's not just her. We know that uh, Chelsea Clinton married a Jewish man, and I'm sure that he is Orthodox to some extent, so maybe he too keeps the Sabbath, which for today, Hebrews chapter 4, has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But I'm always suspicious when I hear unsaved people or religious Jews, and I mentioned Ben Shapiro last Sunday, who keep the Sabbath, very religious, and you know I'm not going to knock them for that. They want to be religious, that's fine. I was religious before I was regenerated. But the thing is, you can't keep the Sabbath. No matter how hard you try, you can switch your phones off, you can go for nice long walks in the park. I would guarantee that their businesses, their enterprises are still generating money. We were down in uh, Golders Green last year and we stayed in a, in a uh, Jewish run hotel. And every Sabbath they are very uh, selective as to what foods they serve, which is fair enough. That's their choice. But what you don't always appreciate is during that Sabbath cycle, they are still open. And they hire non-Jews to run their businesses. And you can still make credit card bookings during the Sabbath cycle. So this belief that in the 21st century, you can just shut down for 24 hours and switch your websites off, deactivate PayPal or Amazon or whatever you've got is foolish. And that's why you were told that Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest. But of course, if you are a Jew, if you have rejected Jesus, you are technically under the rabbinic system and parts of the rabbinic system is to keep the Sabbath, which, of course, you can't do. But here, Zipporah takes a sharp stone, 25, cuts off the foreskin of a son, casts it at his feet, and says, Surely a bloody husband art thou to me. She was infuriated that Moses hadn't done this. She knew why the Lord wanted to kill Moses due to not circumcising his son, which, if you want... You could suggest, could be a picture of somebody today not allowing you to preach the gospel. If you think of people today or over the last 2,000 years that have tried to stop the church preaching the gospel, technically they are, they are guilty of spiritual death, negligence, malpractice, call it what you will, 25 again, in fact going into uh, uh, 26, so he let him go, then she said, a bloody husband thou art because of the circumcision so twice Zipporah steps up, twice she takes the lead, twice she puts Moses to shame, and she makes it very clear this is due to not circumcising one of the sons, which again would result in capital punishment. The Lord's ways are not always our ways, and our ways are not always the Lord's ways. We might think this is no big deal, but if you think of circumcision in a spiritual sense, like the new birth, then you know how important it is. Jesus Christ would say that unless a man is born again, 
unless a person has been born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't go to heaven without your sins being washed away. And that's something which Billy Graham didn't preach. Billy Graham would say that he preached the same gospel as the Catholic Church. He never once criticized the Catholic Church. He was very fond, he was very fond of Bishop Sheen. And he would say that Bishop Sheen was the greatest communicator of the 20th century. And he would say that his theology almost mirrored that of Rome's. And yet people today are applauding him, saying he was the greatest man since the Apostle Paul. Have you lost your minds? Billy Graham didn't preach faith in the blood alone. Billy Graham didn't speak against the anathemas that Rome puts on ex-Catholics like myself. During his crusades, people would go forward, and they are referred to as retreads. And those people that went forward, like tens of thousands all over the world, were many times former Catholics, lapsed Catholics. And he had Catholics at such places to meet those backslidden, lapsed Catholics, and they went straight back to their churches. There was no preaching about faith in Christ alone, sola scriptura, saved by grace through faith alone, and that man did so much damage. He also preached lordship salvation, which is very problematic, but he'll be remembered. He will be remembered as a great compromiser when it came to cozying up with unsaved presidents, cozying up with false churches, far too close to the Freemasons, far too close to the Muslims. In fact, that quote that Robert Schuller Schuller Sr. made before he died, he said, uh, I can't bear the idea of my sons being atheists or my family being atheists. I'd much rather they were Muslims than atheists. Nobody rebuked uh, Robert Schuller Sr. for making such a statement. Billy Graham said that people can go to heaven without believing in Jesus Christ. He said, God's ways are so wide, so wonderful, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, And Shula said, this is wonderful news. This is wonderful news that Hindus, Jews, Catholics, Sikhs, people of goodwill, going back to John the 23rd, can just go into heaven without the Lord Jesus Christ. He got that from the Catholic Catechism, 1994, written by uh, Joseph Ratzinger. But of course, it's not politically correct to speak out against Billy Graham. And mark my words, when he gets buried over the next couple of weeks, the good and the greats will be in attendance. But here, 24... 25, 26 are in reference to circumcision, physical circumcision, which Jewish people still follow today, Islamic people still follow today, neither which can save such people. You can circumcise your boys all day long and die in your sins and go to hell. John eight forty four says, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. This is what a lot of people don't want to speak about. And I keep on going over the same old ground concerning conservative people, uh, Gentile and sometimes Jewish, who make a lot of sense when it comes to social affairs, but they're not saved. They're not born again. And some of those people, I'm afraid to say, are resurrection deniers. 27. And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And he went and met him in the mounts of God and kissed him. Paul speaks about a holy kiss like a good old handshake, or a continental embrace, if you will. Moses didn't really need Aaron. Aaron was a hindrance. Aaron wasn't uh, always the brightest uh, bulb in the box. And like their sister Miriam, would cause Moses problems. But Moses lacked faith, going back to uh, verse 10, and also verse 13. And therefore the Lord, ever gracious, ever loving, would say to Moses, okay, fine, I will meet you halfway. But the fascinating thing 
about when you read the Old Testament and the New Testament is like how John the Baptist was abrasive and bombastic concerning his altercations with Herod. But when Paul speaks to Agrippa and other VIPs in the, uh, in the book of Acts, very deferential, very respectful, very uh, polite. And Moses initially will be somewhere in the middle when he comes into contact with Pharaoh, the third and final Pharaoh. 28. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. The Lord Jesus Christ would spend three and a half years uh, briefing his apostles, explaining to his apostles what would await them, how it would all go. And here Moses is going to take time out to explain to Aaron what is going to take place. Never in a million years would Moses, Aaron, and the rest of the children of Israel have ever thought that they would be chosen to speak to Pharaoh on behalf of the Lord and the children of Israel, which just goes to show that if you have any kind of interest or if you are receptive to the things of the Lord, he may just use you like he would use Mary to give birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. 29. And Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spake all the words which the Lord had spoken unto Moses, and did the signs and the sights of the people. Initially, private signs are now public signs, and Aaron is speaking to the children of Israel, which, if you want, is a picture of John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 4, preparing them for the arrival of the Messiah, which, if you want, could be found here in the person of Moses. 31. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, and that he had looked upon their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. Timeless, of course. They have waited for over 400 years for the Lord to deliver them. He promised great things to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Those 400 years are going to mirror the silence uh, concerning Malachi to Martin. And when Christ arrives, you talk about signs and wonders. You talk about miracles. You couldn't die in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. People are not sick in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He would heal 10 lepers. He would heal people left, right and centre only once. I think it's uh, the end of Matthew chapter 12. It says those from his own community, like Capernaum, lacked faith, wouldn't come to him in order to be healed. And therefore, they were not healed. But those that wanted to be healed were healed every single time. And therefore, Moses is quite likely the greatest type of the Lord Jesus Christ back in the Old Testament. Joseph isn't far off, along with David, who was a priest, a prophet and a king. But Moses has got the sign gifts, unlike Joseph. Moses can do signs and wonders, unlike David. And that's why it's been suggested by many commentators that Moses is quite likely one of the two witnesses found back in Revelation. So you've got... 31 verses from chapter 4, and you've read about Moses being unsure of himself, the Lord taking the time out to reassure him, to equip him, to help him out. He will work very closely with his biological brother, being Aaron, of course. Jesus Christ would work very closely with his cousin, John the Baptist. The apostles, like Peter and Andrew, James and John, were biological brothers, and they went out by twos and did great things for the Lord. Some of David's uh, chief of staff would be cousins uncles and even sons 
going back to this book being a book about families, not just dynasties, but families. The emphasis is on Israel being God's firstborn son, concerning the nation for the New Testament, concerning the man Christ Jesus, like his preeminence. He is the most important man that ever lived and will ever live. And the word of God says that if you have the son, you have life. And if you don't have the son, you don't have life. Moses is almost assassinated by the Lord, not for the murder of the Egyptian, but because he wouldn't circumcise one of his two sons. And like I say, conservative Orthodox Jews still follow this custom. Muslims also uh, follow this uh, follow this custom. But Paul makes the case very clearly from Romans that whether you're circumcised or not, if you're not a true Jew in the heart, picturing circumcision, uh, Colossians chapter 2, you are lost. You can be as religious as you want if your heart hasn't been circumcised, if you haven't been born again, which is a supernatural act. You can't be redeemed. And no matter how conservative you are, like uh, Ivanka or Shapiro or other religious Jewish people, yes, conservative concerning social affairs, but they're not born again. They don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are resurrection deniers. And tragically, they will die in their sins. Going back to John eight forty four, unless you believe, I am. Going back to Exodus chapter 3, I am that I am, like I am the eternal God. I have no beginning. I have no end. There is no other God but me. Unless you believe that, and most of the Jews wouldn't believe that. John chapter 8, and most of the Jews today still don't believe that. You will die in your sins. You will go to hell forever. And that's something which Billy Graham never preached. Billy Graham never preached that to the world. You never see him. You never saw him a day in your life on CNN, Fox News, or ABC, telling his audience and the world that if you died without Christ, you went to hell forever. In fact, towards the end of Billy Graham's life, he said that hell is just a, uh, it's a part of your imagination. It's a concept. It's separation from God. It's just a state of mind, which is what the Catholic Church also believes. And if I wasn't a saved man, I would say this. That's fine by me, buddy. That's fine by me. If I wasn't a saved man, I couldn't care less where I go when I die. And I don't suppose you could either, could you? But if Billy got up and said, you're going to burn. And if Billy had, had explained the new birth in great detail and hell in great detail, wow, i tell you something. He wouldn't be lying in state now in Washington. He'd be the most hated man in America. Zipporah steps forth. She deals with the situation, a very brave thing to do. Also showing the weakness of Moses. And that gives us all hope that the Lord uh, uses imperfect men, imperfect people. John the Baptist would also be doubting. He would say to his apostles, uh, is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the one we should be looking out for or somebody else en route? And the Lord would have to gently rebuke his cousin. Matthew 28 speaks about the apostles doubting whether or not Jesus Christ had been resurrected from the dead. And they got the signs, Acts 2, because the Jews are entitled to a sign, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and that would equip them. On top of that, they got born again over in Acts chapter 2. Moses is reconciled to Aaron, 27, 28, picturing Jesus working closely with John the Baptist concerning the children of Israel, 29, contrast that to Acts chapter 20 when Moses, excuse me, when uh, Paul briefs the elders in Ephesus, Acts chapter 20, and here verse 29 from Exodus chapter 4, 30, 31, signs and wonders, the people see it, believe it, and they are greatly pleased blessed and honored that the lord has delivered them or is about to deliver them and we will spend the next 
12 weeks looking at what will take place once they exit Egypt.